Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The environment and its health impacts all of us. But has the green movement done enough to reach out to communities of color? Today, we look at environmental organizations across America after findings of a national initiative identified a diversity problem in leadership on down. Coming up, we'll hear from Connecticut activists about the work being done in local communities. And we want to hear from you, too. What environmental issues matter to you? Do you think advocacy groups are effective in connecting with residents, whether in rural or urban communities? You can join the conversation today, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, we wanted to connect with an Albany resident. His name is Aaron Mayer. He's an environmental activist, and in 2015, he was elected to be the president of the National Sierra Club. He was the first African-American to do so. Aaron Mayer, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about your background. I understand you grew up on the Hudson River. Well, yeah, I grew up in a place called Peekskill, New York, on the lovely Hudson River, and this is actually the lower Hudson, just outside of New York City, and pretty much most of my life on one end of the Hudson or the other. It's one of the nation's oldest uh, estuaries. It's a heritage river. Uh, it was very critical during the Revolutionary War. It was the uh, east-west divide at that particular point in time of the then 13 colonies. In fact, it was so significant that the British, during the Revolutionary War, uh, as I say, they came down from Canada in the north and up through uh, Manhattan through the South to try to cut the, the then country in, in half. Had they been successful, uh, slavery might have ended earlier. <laughs> uh, and perhaps a lot of things that we're dealing with right now, uh, you, know, uh, you know, such as, uh, you know, a White House in denial of climate, etc., you, know, uh, you know, might, <laughs> you know, might not be here. But in, in all seriousness, uh, the Hudson River and the Hudson River communities have been a very vital part and a bellwether of our environment and our environmental protection from the Clean Water Act, uh, where uh, the Hudson River once was, like the Connecticut River was once, in a big open sewer. But thanks to the Clean Water Act, uh, municipalities are now, again, taking their water from it. But the biggest threats right now uh, are industrial contamination from entities that everybody knows, like General Electric, with polychlorinated biphenyls or PCBs. Now, Aaron, and I understand as an activist, you, ha- you ha- helped uh, with the cleanup of the Hudson. That's absolutely correct. It's my long circle lead, lead into it. And in fact, uh, as urban communities and many urban communities and communities of color are often on the front line, whether it's in climate or in this case, the Hudson River. Uh, and what we have found, thanks to uh, United Church of Christ study done back in 1987, uh, minority communities and low-income communities, First Nation communities are often at a greater risk. And often, the, as I say, the canary in the coal mine when it comes to uh, uh, people impacted by uh, pollution and the negative effect of pollution choices or industrial choices. So um, the Hudson, you know, again, is, is, is emblematic of the topic today with regards to environmental justice and diversity and whether or not these communities are at the table or are organizations moving in directions that, A, leave these communities behind and then can we afford to? Because at the end of the day, uh, as our nation becomes a much more diverse, multicultural uh, nation, uh, eventually the children in these communities will become the leaders in power. And if 
these folks and these children and these communities don't have the equitable access, as I say, to a healthy and wonderful environment and are not engaged in the environmental uh, leadership, regulatory process, and conversation, that does not bode well for our future and the long-term future of the environmental movement. Now, Aaron, uh, when you were growing up, you probably didn't think about becoming an activist. What was the, uh, the catalyst for you? Well, no. In fact, uh, the thing that uh, most urban children uh, and I, the child of the late 50s and 60s, you know, you're dealing with uh, a lot of the social justice struggle, just just struggling for equity and and by justice, because people hear the term justice bantered around, and most people don't really have a sense of what that means. They tend to think it is the new jingoism of communities of color and minorities in particular. But what it simply goes back to, the civil rights, etc., the key term is justice. What that means is equal protection and equal treatment under the law. So justice is a term or shorthand. So I was basically still fighting for some of the basic justice issues with regards to voting rights, job, labor rights, the right to organize. And I found myself, um, as a result of where I lived, uh, in the uh, upwind from a garbage incinerator. In Albany, Albany, New York? So then I ended up into the environmental justice movement, and so fighting for you know, the rights of communities of color to not be dumped on or polluted disproportionately to anybody else. In other words, we're not asking for special treatment, but the zoning process and the regulatory process seem to short-circuit when it comes to poor and working-class communities. And that's whether you're poor white, but predominantly if you're poor black and poor Hispanic, your community's going to be the place where they cite any negative amenity, but it'll be the last place to still cite a positive amenity. In fact, when it comes to citing a park or a wilderness area or a conservation or heritage protection area, they don't look to these communities because they don't value them economically. But when it comes to putting out a, uh, a garbage incinerator, a waste treatment plant, or a bus transfer station, or diesel processing plant, these communities become the front line because, again, of poverty. So the justice model demands that you know communities, because of their poverty array, should not be targeted. And so I found myself in that particular battle in Albany, and uh, I had to fight an incinerator and was very successful in it. In fact, the uh, first and only major action where grassroots organizations shut down an incinerator and had it converted to uh, a different fuel source so that it would not poison and contaminate a community. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about um, environmental justice, also environmental racism with Aaron Mayer. He's an activist in New York, the former president of the National Sierra Club. He was the first African-American to be elected to that post. That was in 2015. Now, Aaron, take us back to that time when you you found out that your new home in Albany, you had a young family, uh, was in the path of this incinerator. There was a lot of soot being blown around. You helped, like you said, uh, fight uh, that the state in terms of helping the families in that neighborhood, including yourself. But you also reached out to the National Sierra Club during that time. What was your experience? Well, to be fair, we reached out to a number of environmental organizations. And it was like that scene in Blazing Saddles, you know, where when it's normally an environmental threat, everybody circles their wagon, but the black community had, was out there circling its own wagon. And so we actually went out to try to get the expertise and learn how to fight and deal and struggle uh, against the threat that this incinerator was posing. So we turned to the Nypergs, we turned to uh, Scenic Huts, and we turned to a whole host of uh, environmental entities. Uh, they just did not feel that that was their portfolio. For, in other words, you know, when a poor black community is knocking at the door, uh, they just felt that, uh, you know, environmentalism in that space was not there. So I, in the Sierra Club was no different at that particular point in time. We went and knocked on the door of the Sierra Club. I was invited down. And unfortunately, um, when we walked into the room, 
right on up to after our presentation. You know, the Sierra Club was not a welcoming place for the conversation or what we had, even though it was talking about garbage incineration, it was talking about waste stream, it was talking about, the, in fact, how we deal with solid waste, which at that particular point in time, this is the uh, mid-late 80s, uh, we had to shut down the Fresh Kills landfill and the famous, infamous New York garbage barge that was going up and down the eastern seaboard and down even to Central America to dump New York's garbage. So this was a topical point and the perfect time to engage in it, but for some reason, when a community of color was knocking at the door asking about this, uh, we were treated as third-class citizens. In fact, it was almost as if there wasn't a garbage crisis, and more importantly, there wasn't frontline victims like my community. And I got personally involved because my babies, my daughters, my mm -hmm. children were affected. They ended up with something called environmental asthma, meaning that when you dump toxic stuff in a place in space, women and children uh, are the first, and the elderly are the first frontline victims. You know, they often get sick fast. And so my babies got injured, and I went knocking on doors, and I turned to the Sierra Club. And at that particular point in time, like many of the environmental organizations, it was not a welcoming place, and I was turned away. And what did they say to you? They told you to check out the NAACP? Well, one of the things, yeah, amongst the conversation, after that lengthy conversation, you know, I thought, you know, when we got to the point of questioning and answer, uh, 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 I thought it was shocking, and I, and I was taken aback that one of the first questions was uh, that I was asked was, did we check with the NAACP, as if, uh, you know, given the portfolio that the NAACP handles with regards to civil rights. And let me say this for the record, I did check with the NAACP, but even then at that point in time, they were so strapped with fights that they could not, and they did not feel that they had the expertise at that particular point in time to take up that particular class of fight. And, uh, and so on another end, they were saying, well, you know, you know this, we don't do environmental work. And it's like, well, wait a minute, but this is justice work. Uh, but we did turn the uh, the uh, uh, Sierra Club, uh, and this is the near Sierra Club. A little bit about the Sierra Club is broken up into chapters and groups. So there's the national, which is the umbrella that oversees all. There's the states, which like like the United States that have control over the local groups, like a state has control over its counties, and then like the counties, they have the groups. And so when I went down, I went to the chapter, which is the state level, and we were turned away at the state level. And uh, but in the long and short of it was is that a activist within the Sierra Club really had the courage, just like the civil rights, the whites in the civil rights movement still crossed the line. They did not accept the fact that there would be unjust laws and unjust treatment. So there was this one white activist and uh, representing a group of white activists within the Sierra Club who actually personally came to my community and knocked on our door, and and actually he was embarrassed, apologized, and actually made our first campaign poster. And I made a pledge to him that once we won and once we were done with the incinerator that I would have joined the Sierra Club and transform its culture and make it a just organization, an equitable organization, but more importantly, a welcoming organization that focused on the issues, not color. Now, Aaron, fast forward to 2015 when you took over as the president of the National Sierra Club. How, have, how did you work to um, in, um, improve diversity in the organization uh, to reach out to communities of color across the country? Well, two things happened in 2015, uh, that, you know, we faced a serious existential threat with regards to climate change. And our community, just as the whole world, is threatened. And this is more time than ever that we have to pull all hands on deck. We're going to talk about saving the planet. We must enlist all communities. And then the next question is, is the Sierra Club or any of the environmental organizations in a position to reach out into these diverse communities that they have historically neglected? And how do you reach out to communities that you 
through your culture and through your behaviors, we're not welcoming to. How do you begin a new conversation when you haven't started the, start the original our conversation of being welcoming and inclusive? And then how do you approach these communities when your own institutional culture reflects that of the old culture of historic discrimination and antagonisms? So my intent of running in for the National Office of the Sierra Club was to not only quickly help the organization change and transform its culture, but to start to put it in a position where it can start to have a conversation and look inwardly at how it's been treating communities of colors historically, own its history, own its legacy, own the fact that, you know, its very founders were some of the founders of the national and international eugenics movement. Uh, Joe LeConte, one of the founders who elevated John Muir to help found this organization, um, you know, he was perhaps one of the prophets of, of Americans' racist uh, history with regards to eugenics and separate and unequal races, and that inferior peoples could not and are not entitled to control the land beneath their feet. In fact, the Yosemite Valley in California had an indigenous First Nation tribe that, while they were, again, this is the emblematic symbol of environmental, and as I say, it is the, uh, the Sistine Chapel of the environmental movement, and at its core foundation was that First Nation people were moved out because they were deemed to be an inferior race. And so it is that legacy of no longer hiding that, but putting that at the front table and having a new conversation and saying, listen, we need to uh, transform our culture. We need to apologize and own this legacy in history. And that the conservation movement and the naturalist movement has a lot of work to do. And it's not only just work. This is not the issue of, you know, let's be benevolent and kind. It's that you are part of the harm, the original harm and sin. And so daylighting that has been a big thing. And secondarily to that is that once you own that, then you get to start to talk about uh, your power and your positioning throughout history and that legacy and how it has created a lot of the institutional inequalities. And now how do we reverse this? And so you cannot talk about changing and transforming an organization's environmental culture without dealing with it institutional legacy. And so as president, I was in a position to help transform and assist and guide that cultural transformation. My unique background as a son of labor activists, civil rights activists, social justice activists, put me in a unique position. Plus my legacy in fighting and successfully winning that incinerator gave me the, as they say, the uh, defeat in both worlds to allow to assist the most powerful environmental organization in the country, if not the world, to, as they say, aid in its cultural transformation. And knowing that if I help the Sierra Club transform its culture, it will serve as a blueprint and model for other environmental organizations, such as the Nature Conservancy, uh, the World Wildlife Federation, all these other entities that are standing out there that all need to change. And we're going to find out more about whether those national environmental organizations are changing on a phone with us is Albany, New York resident Aaron Mayer. He's the former national president of the Sierra Club, the first African-American elected to the post. His leadership role came years after he first reached out to the group when his family needed help with an environmental issue impacting them. That initial Sierra Club experience helped shape his passion to work in environmental justice and to begin his to address diversity issues within the green movement. Now, coming up, environmental activists in Connecticut will join the conversation. We'll find out what efforts help them connect with minority communities. And you can join the conversation, too, 860-275-7266.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Grassroots activism begins locally. Today we're talking about environmental justice and the lack of diversity in the green movement from national organizations on down. Now, how are Connecticut environmental activists working to change this? Joining the conversation now is Leticia Colon de Mejias, Windsor resident, co-founder of Green Eco Warriors and owner of Energy Efficiency Solutions. Leticia, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Good morning. Also on the phone with us now is Herb Virgo, program director for the Keeney Park Sustainability Project. Herb, welcome to the conversation. Herb, can you hear us? Well, hopefully we'll get to him in a little bit, but I'll start with Leticia, who's in studio with us. Uh, I mentioned that you're uh, the co-founder of Green Eco Warriors. Tell us what that organization is. So Green Eco Warriors is a nonprofit educational organization that works with youth and families with a specific focus on urban and minority populations to help connect people with the environment around them and the causes that um, will influence their lives and help really empower and educate families and youth to help them understand that they do have the ability to make a change in the world around them. Now, why did you get involved in this? Tell us about your background. So um, I worked at Hartford Healthcare for 16 years, and I loved my job. I am a mom, and we have a lot of children. And I got involved in the environmental movement because I was concerned about my children's future. As I was studying things in the research department at Hartford Hospital, I learned a lot of information that I hadn't been privy to growing up in public school. And I was kind of introduced to concepts, um, scientific-based concepts and studies, and I started to look at um, concepts in these in these studies around me locally. So. <clears throat> For example, there were some studies on pharmaceuticals and water. I found that very interesting, and I started to think about how that would affect my children. And then from there, um, we started watching documentaries with our children about the environment. We thought it would be a great topic to kind of focus on as a family. And we saw the film Ocean in, A Message in the Waves. It's um, by PBS and BBC. And we were really kind of moved, my children and I, to be upset that we were unaware previously of the plastic crisis in the ocean. And my kids wanted to do something about it. And so that's how Green Eco Warriors started. We started as a family and then involving friends and community members as we really started to grow in our efforts to reduce plastic in the environment, in the waterways and in the ocean, uh, which was causing harm, but also had to do with blasphenol and that leaching into water. And so the more we learned, the more excited and passionate we became about getting involved and educating others. And we felt like I like to say this to people is if you knew there was poison in your water, you wouldn't hand it to your baby, your sister, your mother, your neighbor or anybody. Right. So the more, you know, the more you become inclined to make a change or do something. And that's how Green Eagle Warriors really began. Now, you and your family took initiative, started learning a lot about uh, these issues that are impacting you and the health of your community, and that's what uh, helped you uh, bring about this organization. But today we're talking about just the lack of diversity in, in the national environmental movement and how that impacts local communities, communities of color. Can you talk about what you're seeing here in Connecticut and ways that that can be improved? So that was actually another focus of Green Eagle Warriors. My kid, well, I, I'm I'm Latina of, of descent, and we have mixed children. Um, and really, what we found when we started working with our community members and developing the curriculum for Green Eagle Warriors and going to schools and talking to kids about energy and plastic and all the different important topics like climate change, 
we found that th- at the school level, there really wasn't access to science-based information, and the teachers were not often having access to current information about what was happening environmentally. So we saw just a lack of information and access to it. And what you don't know, you can't really be involved with. If you don't know something exists, how could you possibly care or know its relationship to you? So we still see that today. We go into schools all the time. This is what we do. You know, we love it. It makes us happy. Um, we're a purely volunteer organization at this time at Green Eagle Warriors, and we really um, want to help youth, especially the younger kids, but even high schoolers, understand not only is the environment important to them, but that they need to look up to engage in it. So we run a campaign called Switch It Off. Uh, which is encouraging children to children, families in general to not use electronics all of the time. So like look up from your iPhone, look up from your tablet, um, look at the world around you, because what Green Eagle Warriors has identified in our 10 years is that there's an underlying problem in the room that no one's talking about. And that is that as a nation or as a world, we falsely believe that we do not rely on the environment to survive. And in reality, we all breathe air, we all drink water and we all need access to food. And these things are directly related to how we treat and interact with the environment. So we really are trying to help minorities understand that, you know, yes, you go to the grocery store to get food, but first it came from the ground. And that sounds kind of silly in some cases, but I go into high schools where that's not a common fact. People don't understand that. They don't know that if you dump water, if you dump, you know, if there's a nuclear issue in in you know, Fukushima, that that nuclear waste is going to travel through the oceans and that all water is connected. And ultimately, all things are connected, right? The air is connected, water is connected, all of the land, things can leach from one to another. So every the problem with pollution or environmental crisis is that some people feel disconnected from the problem or aren't aware of the impacts it will have on them, when in reality, it doesn't, environmental problems don't know your color, your age, your sex, right? They're just an environmental problem. They'll infect us. They will affect us all. So we see the same problem today with a lack of access to information for those populations. Uh, You mentioned this perception uh, that minority communities don't care about the environment, but that's false because once they find out this does impact me, they are involved. But they're also dealing with a lot of issues uh, that, you know, maybe they don't have a lot of time to go to that town hall meeting to explain uh, why they're opening that incinerator close to their homes. So uh, can you talk a little bit through um, some of the maybe the local projects that uh, we hear? this uh, sentiment that oftentimes uh, people with good intention come into communities. They're not from those communities. They want to help educate, but then they move on when they get the the data points, when they get their studies done. And the local people are left there waiting for change. That's an excellent point. You couldn't have said that any better, and I'm glad you said it, not me. But I think that what I see in my time of doing this, excuse me, is that Yes, oftentimes people from different communities come into communities of color and they feel that they're doing the right thing by trying to tell people what's going on and get them you know, involved. But what people don't understand is that there are socioeconomic barriers for those populations and that sometimes it's a single family home and the mom is working two jobs. So what I tried, because I have sometimes politicians say silly things to me like, well, where are your people today, Leticia? This is affecting them. Why don't they show up and do something for themselves? Great. Sure. Because they're not being paid to be here like the person from the Sierra Club who's the representative who's being paid to be here at this meeting. They are not collecting data for Yale. They're not being paid to do that job. They couldn't even apply for that job. Um, they they maybe don't have time to review their science material with their child at home because they're working a second job, so their child is watching TV independently 
and choosing what they're watching instead of choosing like PBS or, you know, a nature special, for example. There's a lot of barriers to single parent households, but also low income households where they don't have the time to take off from work if they're working and go to a town hall meeting or any meeting to get the information and facts. And the facts that sometimes get to them could be skewed because Obviously, large corporations that are having poor environmental impacts are smart enough to know to go into urban populations and change the information or explain it in a different way, let's say. This is where we live today. We're talking about environmental justice, environmental racism, and ways that the whole environmental movement can diversify. In studio with me is Leticia Colon de Mejijas, a Windsor resident, co-founder of Green Eco Warriors, also owner of Energy Efficiency Solutions. I wanted to bring back into the conversation Aaron Mayer, an environmental activist uh, who worked uh, at the local Sierra Club, became uh, the national president of the Sierra Club in 2015. Aaron, can you respond at all to what Leticia was saying about ways that um, organizations can effectively go into communities and really connect with the residents um, who are dealing with environmental issues. Well, this is, and she actually highlights a very powerful reason why you need diversity, because without diversity, without inclusion, without, you know, communities having access to the broader environmental movement, there's going to be a lot of myths that pass by, and even just assumptions about organizations. You know, listen, I grew up, as I said, as a poor kid in Hudson River Valley, and I just automatically assumed all white people had money, that there were only blacks served in the underclass, and that was just not true. My entire community, white and black, uh, were part of an underclass class. And the same is true also for the Sierra Club. And, and again, this is one of the problems of the movement not being diversified, is that in trying to cover many issues in cases, you jump in and you hop shot, hop into, into situations and then you leave. You build no connections, you build no community. And there's the other assumption, too, that, uh, you know, that, you know, these people are getting paid. Uh, I want to say 95% of the Sierra Club are volunteer. Our success comes from grassroots groups who are then part of state chapters and it's through these networks that uh, the a lot I would say almost 90 percent of our actions are taken care of is at that grassroots state at level actor level what we do have that is where the inequity is is that because of the experience because of that class which is predominantly middle class is where the actions that it sucks all the financial oxygen oxygen out of the room so grassroots organizations like hers and and other folks whether it's in Hartford, New Haven, uh, Norwalk, Stanford, etc. they don't have the opportunity to compete in that space for the resources they need for immediate local issues and so as a consequence people see Sierra Club all wealth immediately says well you know what you're doing and it's invested there versus local opportunities and frontline and fence line communities that are struggling with these issues and as a consequence as she mentions the children end up growing up with a deficit of access to information knowledge just about their immediate environment and the solutions and tools on how to resolve these issues and this is exactly where my community in Arbor Hill was was that it, it's not an issue that um, you know that that we're not aware we were very much aware of our environment the issue was access to the resources and tools and whether or not the environmental movement because of its large S, was sucking all the oxygen out of that space that did not even allow us the opportunity to fight for our very survivals. In many cases, uh, it is poor communities of color that uh, are fighting for their very, very survival, just like uh, she's doing there. And again, you know, uh, and most uh, 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 when you talk about these communities, when they're facing these issues, as she mentioned, it's coming from a public health perspective. So they're responding as canaries in that coal mine with public health issues. They're presenting symptomatically. And often 
policy and regulatory framework is pushed into an environmental agency, not a public health agency. So there's a disconnect within the state. Communities don't know that knowledge and have that knowledge. So can they respond in a resilient way to any existential threat or risk in the environment for, to address their needs? The answer is no. So this is why big environmental organizations must be aware of their power, their footprint, and as I say, and start to build those bridges with these communities, but basically bringing communities in. So these blind spots with regards to access and empowerment, which ultimately strengthens the organization, uh, is spread out and pushed out into these frontline and fenceline communities. So she's totally spot on with regards to her analysis and the symptoms, because the fact that kids in urban areas are not as aware of their environment as kids in suburban and middle class areas is a symptom of environmental racism. And this is, again, and, and, and this, as they say, again, is, is part of that broader culture. It's not openly intentional. It is just how our society has been organized since its founding and its inception. So the question is, how do we unlearn and how we break these things down? And so, number one, one of the biggest things that we have to deal with is with the foundations and the universities and the academic resources that are right there, the Yales of the world, the Harvards of the world, and the various colleges of the world that are right there. How are they pushing their power into these communities and lifting them up? Automatically, a lot of people, when they retire, such that they run to the Sierra Club. The answer is, how do they run to the communities and set up new synergies to empower and lift up these communities and make them players at the table? Because at the end of the day, it's about a regulatory process that produces environmental harms in these communities. So how are we lifting them up? And sometimes just being intentional about where your donations go. You know, is and you know, demanding that environmental organizations that we are leaving our money to, or in our wills, or that we're donating to, or you know, you should have a key performance indicator saying, "Hey, what are you doing for these communities?" And if not, target your money as you give it to that organization, to that they have to serve these communities. Right now, people give blind donations, but they don't target it to specific uses and purposes. And so intentional with your donations, having foundations reach into these communities and fund them equitably as they do mainstream environmental organizations. Because let's be clear, big environmental organizations don't automatically know what's going on at the local level. And so you must give them the financial inducements and incentives or even requirements that they must put these communities there. Because if you don't move that arc of the funding, then the action will not necessarily be automatic and, and inclusive. And Aaron, I wanted to bring in some listener uh, calls right now. And you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. It looks like Abby's calling. Abby, you're on the show. Abby, are you there? Oh, looks like he's not there, so we'll take another call. Uh, Valentine is calling from Hartford. Valentine, you're on the show. Oh, hello. Um, I'd like to speak up for the Connecticut Coalition for Environmental Justice. It's based, it started in Hartford, it also works in Bridgeport and to some degree New Haven, and it's very definitely locally based. Mm-hmm. Um, it, its members are all volunteers, it has a very small staff of three or four, I think, um, but a lot of us who live here attend the meetings and do canvassing and um, circulate issues on recycling. Uh, one of our issues from the beginning has been the landfill and the incineration. We've been working on issues with CRRA as long as we've existed. Another is we were the moving force behind the environmental justice law that got passed in our legislature. Uh, took five years to get that law through, but we stuck with it. So um, I just want to say this is a grassroots environmental mainly minority organization right here. 
Well, Valentine, thanks for your call. I wanted to go back to our in-studio guest, uh, Leticia Colon de Mejijas. You must be familiar with the Connecticut Coalition for Environmental Justice and the work they're doing. Um, can you talk more about how local, um, the local environmental programs such as these, are they doing a good job getting the minority representation uh, to work on these issues? I'm not familiar with how the Connecticut Coalition of Environmental Justice focuses on the minority population, so I don't want to speak to that specifically. What I'd rather um, like to talk about and I think would be more beneficial for people listening is the understanding that, um, and I, I think it's important that it's great that people volunteer to work in this field, and I think that's a phenomenal dedication of their time and efforts. And the Connecticut Coalition of Environmental Justice does a good job of working on policies and making sure that people are aware of what's going on locally, and that's very, very valuable. But I want to bring it back to the idea that it's important that you allow opportunities for financial investments in developing strategic and large um, scale educational processes that touch all people because we shouldn't really as 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 a um, as a culture as as the, as Americans let's say this it is part of our culture that we believe in that we should provide equal education or at least a base level of education publicly to all people of all color and all socioeconomic status it's kind of what we're based about is we want people to have like a baseline start to be able to be in, working in society and understand how to be part of society. And environmentalism is really a very critical skill to understand the world around you and how you connect to it. And that piece is missing on the large scale level in our public school systems and also in our general culture as people recently. And so I want to talk about, because we talked earlier about, or you talked earlier about the First Nation groups. And one of the things that I've noticed in my studies and development of our work in our communities locally and nationally is that there are a lot of youth and people interested in First Nation societies. They're very connected to the environment, right? Why? Maybe the culturally they are focused on those skills. And we need to find a way to make it culturally a norm where minorities and urban populations see this as part of them and as part of their responsibilities in the world, that they should feel empowered to participate, understand, communicate, and even defend the environment around them. And that could be missing if we don't take it on a large scale level and just leave it to volunteers to do that work. Is there a level of mistrust as well? I do think that, unfortunately, um, you know, you see that when, and I, you know, I hate to make it a race thing, but oftentimes when people of one culture or the haves, let's say, in, in this case, have time, let's say they have time and not money, they have time to go into that community and the other people that they're trying to talk to don't have time to listen or understand in that community at that time. And so what I found was I was often excluded from meetings or I was the only minority in the meeting. I would find out about the meeting last minute. I didn't have access to the information. Then I'd find out and I knew it was important for my people and one of us should go. So I would try to attend the meeting and gather the information, come back to my people and disseminate it. And I found that be, when I was always the only person there, to say that there's people of color working in this realm locally and that there's so many people involved, I would say that that's not actually accurate. It would be a misreflection. It would be misrepresentation since I go to all of the state's energy and environment committee meetings. I sit on the Connecticut Workforce um, Board for Energy and uh, the Environment. I do lots of things in this realm, and I, and generally, it's I'm one of two people of, of color in those rooms. 
This is where we live today. We're talking about environmentalism, also environmental justice, and ways that the green movement can be more diverse. In studio with me, Leticia Colon de Mejias, a Windsor resident, co-founder of Green Eco Warriors, and on the phone, environmental activist Aaron Mayer. Uh, he was the national president of the Sierra Club back in in 2015. And you can join the conversation too: eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. What are some environmental issues that are important to you? Do you feel like these national organizations are connecting with you and your neighbors? in a meaningful way. Again, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Erin, I wanted to um, reiterate something that uh, Leticia said about the connection with teaching kids in schools about the importance of the environment and how um, there's issues around them that matter. And that might be a way in uh, to get the message to their parents who are working, you know, the two jobs, the three jobs, uh, to be more informed about um, the the decisions happening around them in the community. What's your take, Erin? Well, let me help unpack that a little bit because I was a little bit confused by that point because teaching kids, you know, is not really de- the issue dealing with inclusion of minorities in the environment. I think that you do have your standard curricula within schools and parents, even in frontline communities, uh, you know, they're not able to directly impact their school boards and the pedagogy of those boards directly in a way to deal immediately with their toxic environments and the risk that they may immediately face. I think that I, I think I heard perhaps, you know, that, but I think also the need for the investment within the communities to really to build that capacity. And so this is not automatically done through schools. I think schools uh, government institutions. Look, we already have school districts. We already have public health entities. We already have state environmental health risk ent- entities that are already within our state, that are already parsed out by counties and regions. That's clearly not what the issue is. The issue, I think, uh, you know, I don't want to put words in her mouth, is that the need to in- invest directly into capacity of these communities to also be aid not only at the table, but if there are career opportunities and pathways, I think that's part of the solution. Um, but right down to the issue of immediate risk and immediate threats, uh, you know, and and oftentimes, you know, uh, you know, tokenism is where you know folks who intentionally mean well come into a place and space and basically take over, you know, instead of elevating and lifting up the grassroots community and letting them have a voice and say. Uh, Universities that come in and study the issue and get a big research foundation grant to support the work in that environmental space rather than bringing in the community and having direct capacity building in that community to not only be in that space, but, you know, as I say, to develop that capacity so that it not only responds to the immediate issue and risk, but any future risk and threat. So one of the things I want to get back to is what the Green 2.0 study pointed out, and we were part of that Green 2.0 study, and the work that we're trying to do is actually real capacity building, real economic opportunities. So not only are we dealing just with just the victims of the problems, but we want to be part of the solutions. And and it's not that you invest in other communities and then bring it in. Uh, it's about bringing these communities forward. For example, I was you know we we were one of the big supporters of Block Island Wind, uh, which uh, dealt with the issue of affordable energy in a community that was relying upon diesel in Block Island, Rhode Island, and we put in the first five offshore wind platforms uh, right off that island. And that created over 300 unionized jobs, put people back to work who were unemployed, made them part of the green job economy and green job solution. You know, basically, Connecticut has hundreds of miles of offshore. 
where are the low-income communities being part of the energy, sustainable energy solution? So it's not just only reacting to problems, but even investing in these communities to be part of the solution. So there's two pieces of the puzzle. And, um, you know, and, and I think that, you know, we're so far, you know, uh, behind. We don't need not just walk, focus on just basic what I call trinkets, like, oh, just if you take some kids out and park, that just enforces tokenism. How are we, through big green organizations, as they say, uh, building collaborative partnerships, not taking over, but partnerships in these communities to share the knowledge, to share the technology, to share the wealth, to lift up the capacity of these frontline communities. But the communities also have to be specific and not bounce all around the woods. Just say, listen, we need jobs in this space. And do that. Be direct. Be clear. Because just saying we just need education programs at schools, so just say, be careful what you ask for, because you will get that. And, and it's just not going to get you there where you need to be. Aaron, I want to get Leticia to respond before we head to break. Leticia? So, um, Aaron, hi. So here, I don't know where you go to school, where you're, you know, where you're residing or what schools you're referring to. But here in Connecticut, I can speak to what I see in the school system. And I did 60 schools last year through Green Eagle Warriors, where we went to the school's and provided direct education, and I paid for it myself. And I can tell you that the reason why I had to pay for it myself was because there are no budgets which support urban or minority-based science STEM education specific to environmentalism. They don't exist. And the ones that do exist or have funding through um, the different organizations that are here don't focus on that population or their messaging is not correct for that population. So I want to give you an example through Green Eagle Warriors. We went about um, surveying students for a few years and figuring out why they didn't understand where their energy comes from. We picked a specific question. Where does electricity come from? And we went around and we asked, we did post surveys to see what children thought. And we went all the way from little children all the way up to high school and college students. During that process, we found that most youth didn't understand where electricity came from, what the difference was between a renewable or a non-renewable resource. Those are basic science-based questions. So then we wanted to know why didn't students understand that question. So we talked with teachers and administrators. And what we learned here in Connecticut, and I can only speak for the state that I've done this work in, is that those budgets have been removed. So the science-based budgets have been – science as a curriculum, for example, in the town I live in, Windsor, which offers public school – Science is embedded in language arts in my town. So that means my son, who's extremely STEM inclined, cares about the environment, can't study climate change at school, and doesn't have access to basic information because it isn't offered. There isn't, there's no accessibility to it in the town I live in, which is a nice town. So if a nice town like mine with a good public school system doesn't offer climate change information or information on how the world connects to the environment, how could that student ever grow to have an interest in what's going on around them or understand the concepts that they would need to to do the investigation, the research, or even understand the research presented to them as a community? I wanted to read a quick tweet before we had to break. Uh, Jonathan writes, I graduated high school in the mid-90s when environmental was taught heavily. What happened? That speaks to your point that you were just making, Leticia. I want to thank... Uh, Aaron Mayer again, New York resident and former president of the National Sierra Club. We're almost out of time, so I want to thank you for joining us. And coming up, we're going to talk more about this national initiative we've mentioned, Green 2.0. We'll learn more about the study on diversity in the green movement, and uh, we'll take that your comments after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, Chuck Collins is a child of the so-called 1%. On the next Where We Live, we'll sit down with him. He wrote the book Born on Third Base. We'll talk about the decisions that led him to give up his chunk of the family wealth and devote his career to issues of inequality. 
That's tomorrow. Now, today we're talking about the green movement and issues of environmental justice. In studio with us, Leticia Colon de Mejijas, a Windsor resident, co-founder of Green Eco Warriors. Joining us by phone now, Maya Beasley, associate professor of sociology at UConn, co-founder of the T10 Group, which uh, is a diversity consulting organization. And also, she's written a couple of reports for Green 2.0. It's a national initiative focused on diversity in the green movement. Uh, One of those reports titled Beyond Diversity, a Roadmap to Building an inclusive organization. Maya, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I mentioned that you've been studying diversity and efforts to diversify at large national environmental organizations. We heard from a former president of the the National Sierra Club. There's also the Nature Conservancy out there, Greenpeace. What have you and your colleagues found about these organizations and the topic of diversity? Um, Well, I guess we've we've found quite a few things. So, um, you know, um, among other things, we've found that they are not nearly as diverse as we would like them to be. Um, So Green 2.0 came out with a scorecard recently, and it showed that about 14% of senior staff in these organizations are uh, people of color. But if you look at uh, at national numbers of well-educated individuals, so people that have at least a bachelor's degree, uh, the percentage of people of color uh, actually is increasing. So from between 2010 and 2016, uh, people of color went from representing 23 to 27% of degree holders. So we have an increasing share of the, the population that is well-educated and it's just growing, right? So there's this, there's this date of 2043 where the U.S. is going to be a, a racial or ethnic plurality. There's not going to be any majority group. So it's increasingly important to get uh, more representative individuals into these positions and in foreign organizations. We hear that there are efforts recently for these national organizations coming up with diversity uh, committees or, or hiring people that focus specifically on diversity. Are those initiatives working? Well, so... Uh, yes and no. Um, you know, when we conducted the studies, what we what we found was that they were they were very new uh, in a lot of cases, and so it's it's hard to tell how well they're working at this point. But what we know from best practices studies from other types of sectors, um, other business sectors, that that a lot of these things can be really effective. So having a diversity plan, having a diversity council, having a chief diversity officer that reports directly to the the president or executive director. Those are all incredibly important things. Um, but, you know, it it really depends on the organization and how much effort they're going to actually put into it. Um, so, you know, if you have a chief diversity officer who is sort of hidden in HR and stuck in an office somewhere um, that doesn't really have much say, it's a it's a nice it's a nice thing to have. It looks good, but it's not particularly effective. Um, so, it, you know, it, it really depends. But I, I think that quite a few of these organizations are very serious about diversifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, they're really trying to figure out what to do. And I, and frankly, I think that that's one of the most important steps that they can take is, is you know, acknowledging that they aren't where they want to be and that they think that they can do better. Uh, versus, you know, what we found was a lot of leaders that would, um, you know, sort of half-heartedly 
say that they, you know, that diversity was important, but they didn't really necessarily believe that it was important to the bottom line uh, or that they could find qualified candidates to take, um, you know, senior leadership positions within the organization. And so, you know, if you, if you don't have buy-in from the top, it really, um, you know, it, it sort of stops everything. I also wanted to ask you about uh, when we think about what mainstream environmental groups uh, focus on, so conservation, sustainability, and then you have this other branch that focuses on environmental justice. Why is there a distinction between the two? Should, there, should they be working better together? They should be working together at all? I, I think there absolutely should be. I mean, I, I, I understand that there's sort of a, a lengthy history, and I'm probably not the best person to describe the, the history of, of this bifurcation between the two, but there is quite a bit of crossover. So there aren't many environmental issues that don't actually affect human beings uh, and communities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and environmental justice is inherently about, um, you know, communities and social justice. So, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I know there's a there's a lengthy history about it. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I've been working on as a, a consultant is trying to make sure that, uh, that the mainstream environmental organizations are looking at candidates that are coming from an environmental justice background, um, not only as a way to increase diversity, but also because that background is really important to mainstream environmental organization issues. We just have a couple minutes left, uh, uh, Maya. Other recommendations from the, the latest uh, Green 2.0 report that you've worked on that could help uh, these these organizations increase diversity? Sure. Uh, well, one thing I think is making sure that there's an accountability and incentivization to um, for inclusion and diversity. So make sure that there's a clear role for everyone to play in in recruitment, um, retention, and uh, and make sure that that's incentivized through promotion and pay. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to make sure that you're promoting cooperation among diverse team members by structuring tasks and um, incentives and appraisals in ways that foster a group approach mm-hmm. instead of um, you know thinking of it more as an individual issue. You want to make sure that team membership is equally, if not more important than individual performance. Uh, And I think, you know, what's extremely important is to avoid spending a lot of money on unconscious bias and other diversity trainings that don't provide tangible ways to mitigate organizational and procedural biases. And and Maya, we'll actually have to leave it there. We're just about out of time. We're going to link to your report, Beyond Diversity, a Roadmap to Building an Inclusive Organization. Maya Beasley, Associate Professor of Sociology at at the University of Connecticut. Thank you, Maya. Also to Leticia Colon de Mejias, Windsor resident, co-founder of Green Eco Warriors. Thanks so much for coming in today, Leticia. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel.